You are listening to Real Men Feel with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. Uh, well, we are still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, um, unless ideally by the time you listen to it, it's all a thing in the past and no one even remembers what I'm talking about, but uh, I don't think that's going to be the case. Um, but nerves are high, anxiety, anxiety is high, there's a lot of fear. So today we're going to talk about a really cheery subject, depression. <laughs> Joining me today is mental health advocate, podcaster, NAMI speaker, blogger and coach, Mr. Al Lovin. Al, <laughs> welcome to the show. Good. How you doing, Andy? <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to uh to connecting you to, to connecting with you for a while. Um, first, I just want to ask, like, so how are you really at this crazy time? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, it it has been really a, a crazy time, like you said, and I think it's probably been crazy for most listeners. Um, you know, for me here, and I'm in a I'm a school administrator in St. Paul Public Schools, and we recently had a strike. And so all the teachers were on strike. Us administrators were in the building with um, essentially on our own and teachers uh, settled and uh, came back to work for about one day. And then we were told that we were going to be working remotely. Uh, Teachers started working remotely and then administrators a couple days later. So uh, this week is my first week uh, working remotely as a public school administrator. And uh, so it's really, it's really been odd. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I think St. Paul public schools, I give them a lot of credit. They, uh, they're pumping out a ton of information. We're getting things rolling really fast. We're having remote meetings already and uh, getting ready for distance learning starting uh, after next week, which is our spring break. Oh, cool. Because I, I know some, pla- some places around the country seem to be closing. Some, it seems like it's up to each school, up to each teacher to come up with content, try to get in touch with students. But it sounds like you guys have a, a real centralized plan. Yeah, we definitely have a plan, and our uh, K through two teachers are going to be using uh, a platform called Seesaw primarily, and our grades three through twelve are going to be using Schoology, which they've used for a long time. So, um, I, you know, it's it'll be interesting to see it roll out. Cool. Uh, and you know, I, I, was, I was trying to joke about uh, a serious subject, but that's how the only way I can talk about it from my experience is to is to try to bring some humor into it, but. Are, are you seeing um, in, in students and in teachers and in family and friends, is, is there, are people really on edge? Are you seeing more depression or is it not kind of sunk uh, in yet? Or? You know, it's hard to say about depression, like clinical depression, but definitely people are on edge. People uh, are feeling overwhelmed in many ways. You know, our staff uh, are trying to work remotely, which they've never done. Our teaching, our paraprofessionals are trying to figure out their role and we're trying to meet with them and they haven't had the you know, experience on technology like our teachers have. So a lot of it is new to them. They're feeling overwhelmed in that respect, but they're also feeling overwhelmed, you know, being parents or um, older folks and everybody's got their own situation. But I think the combined Let's try to, you know, get this uh, online distance learning rolling as quickly as possible, get through all this information being fed to us and understand it and get it up and rolling at, and at the same time dealing with, um, like I mentioned, family situations and other things. I think a lot of people are overwhelmed. I, I don't know about depression right now. I think um, definitely some, but I haven't uh, seen it myself with the people I work with. Cool. Yeah, and we're seen- trying, we're trying, you know, like you mentioned, adding humor and stuff and, uh, and, you know, it's a fine line too. I have learned uh, the hard way from uh, screwing up myself by, you know, trying to bring light to some things that are very seriously, very serious and, and could be very, uh, very triggering for certain people depending on what they're going through. Right. So, and I never want to make light of, coronavirus because I want to make sure people are taking it very seriously yet at the same time you know there's some pretty funny memes out there and things to to try to keep some lightheartedness but not take away the the fact that it's important and that's kind of how I try to do a lot of my advocacy work at least on Twitter 
I try to add humor where I can because it's not a very humorous subject. Um, but I try to add it where I can. And, and I think people would see if they listen to my podcast, it's all interviews of men. But uh, there are a fair amount of laughs depending on who I'm interviewing and what we're talking about. Yeah. Cool. So, so let's dive into that. Let, tell me about your podcast, which is called The Depression Files. Yep. So the depression, uh, I'm sorry, the depression files and uh, the podcast, I have almost 70 interviews published currently. So every single episode is a, an interview with a man who has dealt with depression and or some other type of mental illness. Originally, my, my thought was just guys who have gone through depression. And I realized after probably my first five interviews, like, wow, these guys are dealing with many mental illnesses. So it was really cool. And I just kind of started promoting it that way and adding the fact that it could be other mental illnesses. And it's really cool um, to be able to speak to these men and to be able to, to dig deep and learn about them, their experiences. I have three goals for the show. Um, The first goal is to educate those who know little about depression and or other mental illnesses to support those who are going through Um, uh, depression or another mental illness. And finally, to chip away at the stigma. I think there is a lot of power in sharing our stories. And the more people share, the more likely others are to share and or to reach out for help. Um, I spoke publicly in front of all the St. Paul Public School administrators and, and shared my story. And even two years after that talk, some people reached out to me to say, you know what, I'm, I'm finally talking about the abuse I dealt with as a kid and, um, and sharing that story and advocating around it. So, you know, it's just a testament to the, the more we share our stories. So I really want to give men voice um, to share their stories and a platform to do that. And uh, it's been incredible. It's, uh, selfishly, I get to learn a ton about so many different mental illnesses. Um, and I just love meeting these men and hearing their stories. Cool. Cool. And, and you, you mentioned you had some sort of experience because, because I was sure that nobody creates something called the depression files without first having some experience of their own in regards to that. Yeah, absolutely. So I have had two bouts of major depression. Um, my first one was really easy to understand why I had been promoted into a principal position in the district. And at the time I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old and two newborns. So, uh, so a lot on the plate and, uh, like, unlike, uh, many, I'm sorry, like many other, uh, principals and people who are promoted into those roles. I came into a really challenging position. There were cuts to the budget already and I was cutting people who uh, I hadn't even met and uh, we were getting outrageous class sizes and there were technical issues in the building and just a lot on the plate. And then to come home to a five-year-old, three-year-old and two newborns was, it was a lot on the plate. And, uh, and it was also difficult for me because I didn't see the family very often. Um, I was up and, and at work before anybody was out of bed and nine times out of, I was always home after dinner and nine times out of 10 after bedtime. So, uh, after two years, uh, what, so I did start experiencing depression and, uh, I saw my family doctor and that was a bizarre experience. Um, one of the symptoms I had at the time, at least when I was visiting with him was kind of fidgeting and I was pacing in this little office that was four by four. And I I literally couldn't sit down, which was really weird for me. And uh, he walked in and right away was just like, Whoa, what's going on? And shared with him my story. And he said, this is definitely depression. He started me on a medication and I started some talk therapy. And I think, uh, you know, I got better after a couple of months. um, And I, was able to stay at work, um, but it was rough. Uh, and then after two years as a principal, I asked to voluntarily step down back to an assistant principal, mostly because I wanted to see my family again and be a part of my kids' lives. So, uh, and then my second year as an assistant principal, uh, all of a sudden out of nowhere uh, came my second bout of depression. And I still remember sitting in a car with my brother and best friend saying, you know what, my body feels really different and this isn't going to be good. 
and I started to crash and I crashed hard and uh, wasn't able to really communicate with people. Found myself at a Thanksgiving dinner sitting at the kitchen island countertop uh, watching my family and friends like communicating and I, I couldn't even associate with them. And, uh, you know, I wasn't sleeping. I couldn't sleep at all. And my, uh, my wife and I talked that night and said, you know, if this is how I am with friends, what's it like at work? And we didn't want my boss. I had a new boss at, his, at that time. My second year as an assistant principal, the school got a new, bo- a new principal, a different building that I was, than when I was a principal. But uh, I shared with him, and I didn't want him to think I was just incompetent, so my wife and I agreed that I should tell him what was going on. Met with him at a coffee shop the very next morning and uh, shared with him what was going on, and he just said, you know what, go home and take care of yourself. We'll be all right at school. And uh, as I walked out of the coffee shop, he called my wife to say, Al just shared what's going on, and I want you to know he's on his way home just to make sure he gets there. So obviously he was very supportive. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so I ended up taking originally 10 days off and I always call them unstructured days. I had no plans. I was trying to adjust my meds and seeing a psychiatrist and figured, okay, after two weeks I'll, I'll be better and, and I'll go back to work. But, um, you know, I wasn't sleeping at all. I couldn't eat. I had a huge knot in my stomach. I was rolling around in bed, um, not sleeping. I would tell my wife during the day, hey, my psychologist said it's like a brain injury and I need to nap. I would stay in bed for like three hours during the day trying to nap and just roll around in bed. But that was like my safe space. Hmm. So I did that. And, uh, I remember laying down with my daughter one night and, uh, because I used to, when they were that age, I would lay down with them and get them to bed. And then my wife would, would usually wake me up 15 minutes later and be like, okay, they're asleep. And my daughter nudged me in the side and she was like, all right, dad, I'm good. And I was like, okay. And I didn't get up. <laughs> I figured if I laid down long enough with her that I would wake up and it would be time for me to get ready for bed myself. Um, I just, I, I would create a list of things to do, like do one load of laundry, clean one bathroom, and I couldn't do any of it. I was on the couch or I was in bed. Sometimes I was connected at my wife by the hip, not knowing what I should be doing. It was really, really bizarre. Uh, And then uh, I decided to go back to work. There was about a week or two-week period before winter break, and I thought that would be a good trial period. And uh, I started having some – I wasn't getting better. And I started having some generalized thoughts of suicide. And I knew that I had a really wishy-washy psychiatric PA. And uh, I went and I I told him, hey, I'm I'm having some generalized thoughts of suicide here. Is this, could it be the meds as paradoxical as it is that the fact that antidepressants have black box warnings saying that they could increase thoughts of suicide Uh, Or could it be my depression? He said, yeah, it could be either. He raised my meds and then my suicidal thoughts, my crying bouts got worse. I would hold it together all day. I'd ball at night. Um, And uh, my suicidal thoughts became uh, a plan. I mean, I found myself doing some really weird things like in the dark, in my bedroom with my laptop open, searching. I just Googled suicide and the first site I found showed the methods, the number of seconds to death and the number zero to 10 and how painful it would be. And I slammed my laptop shut and just couldn't believe I was doing that. Finally, I uh, created a plan that was viable and I, I knew how I, how I was going to do that. And I couldn't get the thoughts out of my head as much as I tried to push them away. And then they'd be there like 20 minutes later. And uh, finally, I woke up one night and dreamt, uh, was dreaming uh, about it and woke up and was scared as hell and invited my wife and my sister to go to my psychiatric appointment to, to support me. And they did. And my wife really put her, my sister really put her foot down and said, look, he needs more because the psychiatric PA said, you know, you could take work off, but that could be stressful too. And what do you do? What do you tell them? So uh, I did take time off and checked myself into a partial hospitalization program for three weeks, which was a great start kickstart to the recovery. 
So that was lengthy. Sorry about that, Andy. <laughs> no, no, never, never apologize for sharing something <laughs> like that. No. Um, and I just want to take a minute and, uh, take it all in for myself. Um, yeah, it's a lot. It got uh, really, really heavy. And like I said, I couldn't even believe the things I was doing um, and how much it impacted my focus, my memory, my cognition. I was driving my daughter a block and a half away to a, pick up a carpool kid who we had driven with many times. And I got lost. It's literally one turn from our house about six blocks and I got spun around and had to pull over and pull out Google Maps. Uh, and I was so embarrassed and, and worried that my daughter was going to see what I was doing. I was trying not to let her know. Yeah, everything you it's almost like there's a PTSD for suicide attempts because uh, everything you're saying, I'm just having different flashbacks at different times in my own life. And yeah, I, I know that sight. I know those feelings. Yeah. I know those experiences. So um, I hear you. Um, yeah. And thank God you had such a supportive family and, and workplace and, and community. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's so important that people reach out for help because, I mean, I was really close to, to, to you know, taking my own life. And I, I was very close to it. And I, I know that if I didn't reach out and ask for help, I would have been in dire trouble. Yeah, yeah. And as difficult as it is, that is the most important uh, thing to do to reach out for help. And some people say, you know, I don't have family. I don't have, you know, a tight friend I can ask, but there's always, always somebody. It might be a clergy member. It might be a suicide hotline. It might be the ER, depending on where you're at, you know, in your depression, but there is somebody and yeah. you need to reach out. And if you get a bad response, cause some people are like, well, I tried and they blew me off. Well, then you try somebody else. Yeah. You know, right. it's yeah. so important. Right. Don't, for God's sake, don't, it's not a sign that you're meant to die. If that first person you, you decide to take a risk with doesn't take it well, or, yeah. you know, yep. the suicide hotline, you know, you get disconnected. It's like, it's, it's, it just is a disconnection. Like don't yeah. try yep. to make it into something else. And in, no. in, fa in fact, when I was in a really bad place, the first person I decided to reach out to, I essentially blew me off. It was somebody who I had worked with, who was a coach of mine. And, I said, you know, I'm really in a bad place, really struggling. And it was really difficult for me to reach out. And the person was like, you know, well, we have a coaching relationship. We can't, you know, taint that. Like, and, and I was thinking like, this is the most positive person in my life. This is why I'm reaching out. And I got shut down. And uh, that was really, really hard. Uh, but it didn't stop me from then reaching out to others. You know, I think I might, I might take it for granted as, as, as living through that kind of knowing that so often what people need is just that safe space just to stand there and he and hear it. Right. That person didn't necessarily have to do anything, but yeah. that they, they couldn't deal with that uncomfortableness. Cause I, I talking to someone who is feeling like they're better off dead. It, it almost, it, it's so unnatural. It can be so uncomfortable for someone that's never thought that it's just like, it, it's almost like they just can't deal with it. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So it's not a reflection on the person telling them what's up. It's, it's just that they just cannot resonate or, or perhaps it troubles them for something that they've never even like acknowledged in themselves. Right. But you know, it's, but it's about them. It's not about you. So don't take it as a, another slam, a judgment against you. It's just that. Yeah. Just, you know, unfortunately you pick someone that, that just wasn't capable of, of hearing it in that moment, at least. Right. Right. And I, I tell people, you know, you don't have to be a therapist or a doctor to listen to somebody and to ask somebody if they're okay yeah. and to listen, you know, and to listen empathetically and, and hear them out and offer support. And, you know, hopefully they aren't in such a, a dire situation, but you really have to listen closely and make your decision of next steps based on what they're, they're saying. Right, right. And in case anyone is listening now and is, is getting, you know, any sort of triggering thoughts of their own, I just do want to share the, the National Suicide Lifeline in the United States, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. And, uh, and just tell someone, just get it off your chest and stop ruminating about it. Because uh, I found that was the worst thing. And Absolutely. I always felt better telling someone how bad I felt. Um, not for the sake of like a drama show, just, just ugh, feeling that, that a bit of the weight is gone. Has that been your experience? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So it sounds like 
from even your first episode that you could tell the people you worked with and you were supported through through both experiences, both episodes? Well, so it's interesting. I told my boss and that was it at work okay. and I had no option. I knew I needed off and I knew I needed to tell, I guess I could have just said I was sick. I think I'd, I had only known him for a few months, but we had really bonded and I really trusted him and uh, shared with him. And, uh, but I didn't want anybody else to know. And in, in, it's really incredible looking back just how much shame I had. Uh, I, I walked up and down the aisles of Walgreens, our, our pharmacy and little drugstore. I would walk up and down the aisles to make sure no neighbor was in there before I went to the counter to ask, like, God forbid somebody heard I was asking for an antidepressant, right? So I would walk the place and make sure no neighbor was in there. And then I'd get home and I would tear up the paperwork into tiny little pieces as if somebody might go through my trash and see the name of an antidepressant. Like, it's really, really odd. Or I went to a behavioral health clinic that was you know, not too far from St. Paul where I work and I've been in the school district since 99. So I know a lot of people in the, in St. Paul and, uh, it was a behavioral health clinic. So I couldn't say, yeah, if I bumped into somebody, uh, I'm here for my, my yearly physical, <laughs> you know, I'm in a behavioral health clinic. So I, I was tempted. I asked, you know, do a lot of people from St. Paul come here? And they were like, yeah. And I was, very close to leaving my psychiatrist because I didn't want to bump into somebody who might see me there. Um, a lot of shame involved in it. And I think that's part of the challenge of reaching out. Did, did, did you ever face the stigma of it or was it just fear of the potential of even having stigma against yourself? Uh, I think it was mostly the fear of yeah. the stigma and o avoiding people. I mean, even when I was, at home, I wouldn't go out to the store because I didn't want to see somebody to have to explain why I wasn't at work. Right. You know, you look healthy, you look fine. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I never, and I had already communicated with my boss and he was supportive. So um, I, I can't really say that, that I felt uh, the stigma now that you ask, but I definitely believe there's a strong stigma out there. I think it's still... You know, and I think that's partly where the shame comes from, I think. And a lot of people, even NAMI has come out and said, you know, we shouldn't use the word stigma. We should use the word discrimination. And, and I have my own take on that. I believe if we could get rid of the stigma, there would be less discrimination. So I yeah. think it's important to talk about both because if there was no stigma, nobody would be discriminating, right? We would understand what it's about and we would have more empathy for people just like we do when somebody's out because of cancer or yeah. a heart disease. Did, have you ever looked at what, what the shame was rooted in? Like, do, were you conscious of what you were afraid of happening? Yeah. You know, I think for whatever reason, just a mental illness comes with, with, uh, the shame. I think many people, I, I mean, I can't say everybody has that. That would obviously not be correct. Um, and I don't think I would have it again. Luckily, I've only had the two bouts of depression. I've been, you know, mentally fit for a long time, but I believe the work I'm doing is helping to chip away at the stigma by getting men to speak about it. Um, but I do think, uh, yeah, it's hard to say. Because yeah. like whatever fear was keeping you quiet then has obviously been shattered yeah. since you're speaking publicly, you're doing your podcast. Right. I, I'm just wondering if you ever like, oh, you know, have you ever realized, oh, this is what I was afraid would happen, but it, I see that it doesn't happen. Yeah, I think the, the mental illness, for one thing, just impacts your mind and your brain so much that um, that you can't think logically. You can't understand that. This is just an illness like cancer or something else. But I do think also it is the reactions many people have. Um, you know, if we, I mean, I, I've been writing a blog as well, also called The Depression Files. And I would have a, a, co a uh, one of the teachers who I work with know about my blog and she'd come into my office. She would still walk all the way back by my desk and whisper to me, I read your last 
post. And I'd be like, it's not a secret. You can say that out loud, you know, but there's still this tendency that we don't really talk about it. We keep it a secret. If somebody dies by suicide, you know, it's, it's maybe a little more common that people are willing to share that. And I understand the difficulties also because those sharing, it isn't that person, but, um, I don't know. I just, I do feel like the stigma is still there. Some of it is self stigma. Like you're kind of pointing out the fact that I didn't really, I wasn't really discriminated against. I didn't really, but, um, yeah. So I, I think some of the stigma is within, and I think definitely there are plenty of stories about people not getting hired or getting fired and such, um, because of a mental illness yeah. or not getting the accommodations that, they would if they had another physical illness. Right. Yeah. Um, so I dealt with, with depression, suicidal thoughts from a really young age. So I had kind of, you know, by the time I'm in college, I was like, I don't care. Like I, it's, I, I, my attempts to hide it didn't work. So I don't, I didn't care who knew. So I've never really had to deal with that as, as an adult. Um, right. I've been pretty open and, and actually uh, a couple of years ago, last time I was on a job hunt, you know, now job applications like, Oh, do you want to say that you have any sort of a uh, mental illness for the sake of, you know, tracking and government i don't even know what i said I'm like like should i say yes like well am i likely to be more hired now are they looking for the mentally ill like what should i do with this question now so now it's like has it totally flipped like they're trying right. to get us um so it, it, funny. it's yeah it's really bizarre but but yeah i always like to you know ask people about what they're because i i know that i've discovered you know in my life action cures fear Right. Everything I used to be terrified of, now I do. I'm like, oh my god, that this this is the thing I used to be totally afraid of anyone finding out, and now I hear I'm talking about it all the time. And I, I just wondered if you've had those moments of realizations. Uh, you know, I think, like you said, now that I'm talking about it and everything, I, I have no fear of it, and I'm trying to work at diminishing the stigma. But uh, at the time, I certainly had a lot of fear of people knowing, people finding out. I don't. I think it was unfounded. You know, it would be interesting to me. I do not want to go through another bout of depression, but I am kind of curious, like, would I be able to share it and feel the way I do now about others who are living with a mental illness? Or would I fall into this shame again if depression fell upon me again? Uh, you know, I, I, don't, I really don't know the answer and I hope I never know the answer because I, I really don't want to get there again. Uh, I, you know, I think everybody's depression is very different, right? I, I talk to men who, uh, some guys or, or people in general, right? I just re- reference men cause that's who I've been interviewing, but people have different types of depression. Some live with what used to be called dysthymia, which is now just called chronic, um, depression. And so it's, a low grade, although they may disagree and say, no, 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 it's not low, right? But a constant depression. Others go through cycles, some that are easy to recognize the cycle. So for example, SAD, seasonal affective disorder, where it's coming around in the winter, typically in those dark days, dark months, and, uh, and then they're okay until the next winter. Some are going Every few weeks, they hit a depressive cycle, and some are just cycling on and off, and there's no pattern. The, the depression I have had, at least so far, was a depression in 2010 and a depression in 2013. They were both um, incredibly awful, and I would never wish them upon my worst enemy, which is part of the reason I'm out advocating. But uh, I feel really pretty lucky uh, to be the type of person who is not cycling through. But I'm also, I'm still on medication. I'm still going to a men's support group for depression and anxiety every other week. I'm doing the podcast. So I'm talking about it and sharing about it. I'm trying to make sure I'm exercising more. So I'm definitely uh, in a different place about watching for it and taking care of it. But I really, I feel lucky for two reasons. One, I, I do feel lucky that I've gone through it because it really gives me a different kind of empathy for people with a mental illness. And I certainly had some of the very negative stereotypes that I'm even embarrassed to mention, um, but will, because I think it's important. Like in my mind, uh, mental illness, I would think of somebody begging on the street for money, you know, and I, I wouldn't even think like, why, what might've happened to them to get them in that place, you know, but that was one of my very negative stereotypes. So I think, um, it has grown me immensely with a different type of empathy. And I get to 
you know, like I said, interview and learn so much about it. And I really feel like I'm helping people. It's, it's an incredible feeling to feel like I'm doing good and putting good out into the world and supporting people and hopefully saving lives. And that feels really, really good. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, thankful that I went through the depression. And like I said, I'm very thankful that I've had two bouts and hopefully never another one. I've, I have definitely have felt that and met a lot of people that do that too, but could I have dared tell you that in your first major depression, your home, you can't work. Cause I said, Oh, there's going to be a day that you're going to be glad for this. And all these great things will come from it. No yeah. way. Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, never would have thought of never never would have thought it and that's part of the reason you know i'm a huge uh, believer in support groups like i said i still go and part of it is you get to meet others who are there right in a really deep dark place and you get to support them they get to see where people have come to those who are feeling better and you get to support one another and it's like instant trust right i walked in my first night I went to the support group was the night before I checked myself into the partial hospitalization program. I walked through the door. I cried for two hours in front of like eight strange men sharing my story. Didn't want the two hours to end because it was like the first safe space I had ever felt. And, uh, and I remember just like bawling. And then at the end being like, is this confidential? Cause again, this shame still creeped in, right? Like, nobody's going to say where I work, do you, you know? So, um, yeah, but, uh, support groups, I think are, are really can be really beneficial. And, and usually there's no cost, right? A lot of people who are looking for help don't have the funds to get a therapist. In your first kind of public outing of yourself, was it a, a podcast? Was it a public speaking engagement? What, what was the first big public step for you? Yeah, that's a great question. So in once I was healthy, probably I bet a good two years out or so, uh, I decided to share my story. And I, I, I even thought about sharing it with the staff I worked with. But then I was like, you know, this is going to become all about me. And really, it's about the work. So I decided to create a blog. I had never blogged before. Decided to create a blog. And I wrote my story. That was the first entry of my blog. And then I started like Googling my blog and I couldn't even find it, like knowing where it was. (laughs) So I was like, okay, well, that's not working. So then I created a Twitter account to my blog and started writing more, posting more. And on Twitter, really all of my Twitter feed was essentially trying to drive traffic to my blog. And then I started getting recognized by some people in the mental health world and I got invited to a conference. And from the conference, um, I came away from a conference. It's an amazing conference uh, that is for online advocates of chronic illnesses. So it's chronic illnesses of all types. It's put on by Janssen. So I was a little nervous because that is a, a pharmaceutical. It's a division of Johnson & Johnson. They pay for advocates to get together to come out to a conference. But the advocates run the show. They create, they invite the speakers and they have big speakers, Twitter's there, YouTube's usually there. A lot of the advocates present. Um, And somebody from there reached out to me and said, Hey, we we're trying to ramp up our mental health advocates. We have a lot for HIV, psoriasis, different stomach illnesses, cancers. um, And we're trying to ramp up uh, mental illness and you aren't a shoe in, but we'd love it if you applied. And I applied and got in. And from that conference and meeting all these different advocates was amazing. And it's really kind of interesting because there was not a single session on a podcast there. But for whatever reason, I walked out of there with this idea to podcast. And through a contact I made there, a YouTuber, she had connected me with a big podcaster, Paul Gilmartin of Mental Illness Happy Hour. And I reached out to him and he was so helpful. He just fired me back a huge, uh, a huge letter of, of tips and advice for a podcast. And then I started, I was, so the, that's how the podcast came around. And then I was really nervous to launch it, right? Like I started, the way I started, it's kind of funny. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I bought two mics, two headphones, and I went to my 
uh, support group. And where I go, they had about 10 different support groups. So I asked if the leaders would share what I was doing. So I invited guys one at a time down in my basement, recorded the podcast. And it was so funny. My daughters would be on the couch and someone would knock on the door and they'd be like, another strange man coming over, dad. <laughs> they'd be like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then eventually uh, I realized I was going to tap out of resources. So I went to Skype so that I could interview men from around the world. But uh, what I did at first was I had about six or eight episodes uh, created before I ever launched it. And you know, this little piece of me was like, if I never launch it, uh, nobody can critique me. I can't fail at it. Maybe I'll just keep it here. It's been fun. Uh, but then all of a sudden on September 10th, I think it is, was World Suicide Prevention and Awareness Day. And I had one episode that had been, I, that I had edited. I was like, oh my God, if there is ever a day to launch the Depression Files, today is the day. So I just, I launched it then. And, uh, now it's been about two and a half years that it's been going. I publish every other Sunday and I have really, really tried hard to get a very diverse group of men. And it's been pretty incredible. I have like from an NFL player to an ER surgeon to war veterans to a transgender male, um, all different types um, of people. Some are advocates themselves, some aren't. Um, I've targeted um, black men at times, you know, so that I can get people of color on the show and talk about their experience. And then the different mental illnesses, uh, it's, it's pretty unbelievable, actually. I mean, from every mental illness you could name, I probably have had on the show from DID, dissociative identity disorder, which is the old multiple personality disorder, bipolar one, bipolar two, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, borderline personality disorder, um, associative disorder, I just like everything. And like I said, selfishly, it's been amazing to talk to these people and to learn about everything and, and to hear different you know, different perspectives is another thing I like to bring to the table. So I may disagree with somebody, but I'm going to let them share their perspective. If I really disagree with it, then I get put in a bind where I, I'll push back sometimes and say, you know, I did, might disagree a bit with that. But, um, but it's been an amazing, uh, amazing gig for me personally. Cool. And talking to so many men, have you come across any commonalities in all those different stories? Uh, so that's a great question. I think the most common thing I hear one is that a lot of men in hindsight can pick out some clear symptoms they had as a kid that were hints of mental illness. Um, but they didn't realize it at the time and maybe their parents weren't attuned to it or maybe they're old enough now that back then nobody talked about it and just thought maybe you were quirky or different. I think that's probably the biggest one. And then quite a few men with bipolar disorder I have found originally land with a diagnosis of depression and then get put on an antidepressant, which kicks off a really... Um, a really powerful mania because of the antidepressant. And then they realize and get diagnosed with bipolar disorder because possibly they had had some smaller manias and not really realized it. Um, so that's been a fairly common one as well. But uh, the other thing I do and uh, that I love doing too is speaking publicly. Uh, I was, like you mentioned, I spoke a lot for NAMI. Speaking for NAMI has been a little challenging because it's often during the workday and I have a typical hour, hourly job, you know, typical hours. Um, but I have spoken a fair amount on my own now and I love to do that. And I'm really, the new thing lately that I'm trying to speak more about, if there's any listeners who want to hear more about it, is uh, everybody knows about the mental struggles, the mental health struggles of the kids in education. And we're not servicing them as much as we need to. There aren't enough beds. There aren't enough doctors. They need way more help than we can give. But at least people are talking about them and trying to make changes. Nobody is talking about educators. And I believe even before coronavirus came, particularly in an urban school setting like where I work, 
teachers are dealing with kids who are going in and out of complex trauma on a daily basis. Kids are having behaviors because of the trauma they're experiencing. We are on the receiving end of that trauma often, often. And teachers are stuck in their classroom all day long. And they, they don't get a break from it. So, and it's well known, secondary trauma or compassion trauma, right? And nobody's talking about it. And I don't know why, but I think um, we're going to see a lot more need for support for educators because they are burning out. The job is stressful enough. You deal with angry, yelling parents. You got administrators sometimes breathing down your necks, doing formal observations. And then, I don't know, let's say elementary school teacher has to rip a scissors out of a kid's hand because they're going for their own neck and then you know they call for support we get the kid away and then we're like okay continue your math lesson thank (laughs) you you know and and we have an eap employee assistance program so we do get four free counseling sessions confidential but that's a drop in the bucket right and i think we can create a better system of supports for our educators and that's uh something that i would love to develop and share with districts um, because I think there's a huge need and I don't know how many more suicides and mental health leaves of absences we have to wait for before somebody says yes let's look at the educators let's figure this out and support them more because there's a dire need just in our small building and and school district um, I've got plenty of examples and I know we're not an anomaly in the twin city Metro area in the past two years, we've lost two principals to suicide. Um, the, the suicide, uh, suicide rate for men in the twin city Metro area in the past two years has gone up 18%. So, and the numbers nationwide are continue to go in the wrong direction. Yeah. Numbers of suicides and suicide attempts. It's, it's, mind-boggling actually the data was part of the reason i decided to advocate it was shocking to me to see the data so tell me more about the the program for educators what 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 does that look like what would that look like so i would love to be in a position where i'm able to to do more research around it i think there are more companies that are able to do more um for their employees than what educators are doing so i think there are many places who are doing a great job that i would love to try to emulate Some of my thoughts are um, like across our school district, I think it's big enough that we should have support groups. We should have support groups for our social workers. We should have a support group for our counselors, a support group for maybe our K3 teachers, our 4-8 teachers, our high school teachers. So they can share the stories, the stories that they're all dealing with. They can see they're not the only one who had a desk thrown at them or a book whipped at them, right? And they can talk about how stressful it is and be able to get that off their chest. Like you mentioned earlier, what a relief it is to be able to share some of that, right? So that's one way. I think we can do, um, we've brought mindfulness into our school for the kids. I think we can offer some mindfulness and meditation um, ahead of time before the school day, some optional courses for teachers. Um, we have brought in therapists into our own school for the kids. One uh, grading day, I uh, had our art therapist open up her room for any teachers who wanted to go in. And we did a group session of art therapy around the topic of self-care. And we only had about eight educators there, but the the conversation was amazing. Like they were sharing things that I was just like, whoa, I can't believe like one session meeting and they weren't all from the same grade or anything. They weren't super tight, but the things that came up and came out, like we need to be doing those things on a regular basis. And those are just a, a couple sample examples. Yeah. And those are great. Like those are, those are such low budget things like that. Yeah. So budget's not a barrier to the things you've talked about there. Right. Right. I created a, I got a grant from health partners and I created a self care room in our building. Mm-hmm. So there's a space where teachers on their prep can go and there's like a shiatsu massage chair in there. There are iPods I got with uh, headphones so they can listen to meditation, guided meditations or just music um, and different things, a comfortable chair where they can recline. Uh, a massager that you can change the head on so you can give yourself a back massage or rub your legs. But um, yeah, so I mean, I think there's a lot we could do and I think it's really, really needed. Um, After I shared my story with the administrators, um, you know, I had people reaching out to me in tears, like privately saying like, 
you just shared my story. And we have people struggling. But after I had shared, I also asked the district, hey, let me do more now. Let me do more. And really, I felt like the door was kind of closed on it. And I don't know if it's like a liability thing that they're worried about or, oh, my goodness, he said the S word, Mm. suicide. What do we do now? Um, But they knew what I was going to talk about. So I was really um, excited. I'm proud of the district to let me share my story publicly in front of 140 public school administrators from our district. I just, I want to do more. And I think we need more for the administrators and the the staff, all of the staff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you mentioned beyond people coming and saying, you just told my story when they see you speak. Is, is there a question you're asked most often? Is it something that people want to know more about the, the most often or? As far as educators go? Anybody, any audience, Anybody? like, yeah, what do you get asked the most? Uh, you know, I think people are just, a lot of people are looking for a quick fix, you know, how, what do I need to do? How do, how do I get better? And really, uh, there's no quick fix, unfortunately. And I feel like our medicines are so far behind compared to every other ailment and illness and medical, you know, all these new things new developments they come out with, but still our antidepressants are take one and wait six weeks to see if there's an effect. And if there's not, we'll try another one. And then you wait another six weeks. And of all the illnesses to have a mental health, a brain disorder where you may be considering suicide, uh, that's not the one we want at meds to wait. Yeah. So I've been excited now that they came out with esketamine, you know, some different types, which is a whole new classify classification of drugs. So I'm hoping to see more, more kind of evolve from those pieces. But uh, I do think uh, people have to create a tool belt of go-tos. And I always say it takes time and effort, but it definitely takes effort to get better. Yeah. Like I, it's, it's wrong if you think you can even just pop a pill and just wait for it to get better. Yeah. You need to do things like exercise, like journal, like um, get outside, uh, you know, there's a lot that you can do to work to, towards getting healthy. Find a support group, go to a therapist. Um, and I understand some people frown upon meds and, you know, I, I kind of feel like to each his own. I, but my big thing about meds is don't judge people. Some people, you know, it's a difficult decision for anybody to take a medicine or not that's going to have some kind of impact on their brain. Don't don't go pill shaming people. Don't yeah. go bad mouthing people. People are making difficult choices. Yeah, you, um, you and you know that works. that is a stigma that I definitely hear from people who I think are really um, not like really attuned to mental illness, to social justice, and um, anti racism. But some of some people who will still say like, "Oh yeah, so and so didn't take their pills today," you know, as if you know. They're, they're acting crazy, you know, so those types of, and I do think that there can be implications to language use like that. Um, because that, you know, if you say that in front of somebody who is taking medicine, what does that say to them? Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. There, there is the, it's a different stigma and even, yeah, people that can be doing their best to support people with mental illness and yeah, there can be a whole, oh, you're doing that? Oh, well, that's the wrong thing to do. And that, yeah. So, but I was, right. yeah, medication gave me nothing but side effects. Um, yeah. But at times it was like, well, at least I'm willing to take, like, that's when I'm, I'm willing to take, give me something. I'm willing, yeah. like, I'm willing, I'm trying to do something. So that was always uh, a, me and my family saw it as a positive sign. If, even if it didn't help, I was like willing to do something. And that was yeah. a good sign. For um, sure. And I've heard a lot of men say side effects, right? So, Um, And then it's a matter of maybe trying a different medication, right? And uh, it's weighing the benefit and the risk, right? Like, is your side effect better than possibly being suicidal, right? Is it a side effect that you can live with that's okay? Is it just dry mouth, right? Or, Or is it a sexual deal and you're trying to get pregnant? Like, you know, so there are different things to weigh out around side effects, Um I've been really happy on the medicine I've taken with, which I would say has zero side effects that I've noticed. Um, I do know that at first the doctor told me 
for two days, you're going to experience, I still remember exactly what he said. And I remember those days, dry mouth, um, dizziness, and your anxiety is going to skyrocket. (laughs) And for two days, I like, it's really weird. My anxiety was so, so high, but now I'm like tuned into it. So now that if I have just a little bit of anxiety that I never thought of, I even had any, but now I can spot it pretty easily. Like, oh, there, there it is. I can feel it in my stomach or whatever it might be. Um, because I think I was at such a high level that I now am able to recognize it more. Um, and, you know, another strategy that I use a lot, if I feel anxiety coming on, I'll do the deep breathing, you know, three deep breaths. And the breathing is awesome. I mean, it can really you can change your blood pressure, your heart rate, so many things with your breath. And it's something that you have with you 24 hours a day, no matter where you are or what you're doing, you can take deep breaths. So, Yeah, yeah um, that, that's what I love, those, those simplest things. Because it can, you can be homeless, you can have no resources, and you can master that skill. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So yeah, it, it doesn't, it, it's not a, there's not a means test to doing some of the things that, that can make everybody feel better. Right. And it's also important to, to do those things and put things into practice when you're not at your lowest, because right. that's when it's the hardest to do anything. So yeah. to add something new when, again, when you're just, you feel like it, it, it's a huge deal to put one foot on the floor and get out of bed. Yeah. And that's not, that's going to be the hardest time to start an exercise program or to start meditating or even to get, to give a crap and go search YouTube for how, how do I do deep breathing? Absolutely. So, do those things, get into, get into a gratitude habit, journaling, exercise, do a support group while you're feeling at least good. (laughs) If you have a history, like do it when you're feeling good so that the downs aren't as down, they're not as steep, they're not as rapid. And I would say the same for going to a therapist, right? It's okay to go when you're healthy and you can talk about how rough it was and you can create strategies with them and things that will help get you out of it. All of that is really talking about building your resiliency, right? Your resiliency, your toolbox, um, so that you are prepared, right? I'm really confident that I have a lot of things in my tool belt that if I start feeling depression coming on, man, I would hammer all of them. I would be on my elliptical, you know, while talking to someone from my support group and, uh, you know, I would be and eating some celery all at the same time. <laughs> so w- with all that said, is there a, a book, a program, a habit that, that you, you know, want to share the most that, that is kind of the go-to suggestion to people? Uh you know, the breathing one that I mentioned, I think is really good. I think uh, I love journaling. I journaled every single night through my depression more than I had ever journaled. And every night I ended my entry with today in order to work towards recovery, I, and I put bullet points and it might've been literally, I got out of bed, mm-hmm. but I wanted to acknowledge that I was working at it because I didn't feel like I was. Mm-hmm. So I made myself journal about it. Journaling is great. I think picking up a hobby, if you used to play the guitar, but you haven't recently, you know, to have a hobby really helps to focus on something other than ruminating like you talked about. So um, a hobby is great. Um, And also, you know, exercise, and it doesn't have to be big. If you're starting to feel it, try to go out for a walk. I'm not saying a walk is going to cure you from a depression by any means, but it certainly is helpful to get fresh air. You get some exercise. Um, And I think it's important to try to keep up with your uh, social contacts too. You know, don't like question yourself if you start making excuses and you aren't seeing your friends at all anymore. Question yourself, like, why, why am I not doing that? Because that could be very much an indicator that you're starting to isolate, which is not good. Um, And And men uh, tend to do that. And to go deeper on that, we're we're at a time when a lot of people being forced into social isolation. Exactly. So again, we're right now we're talking on Zoom, but every, you yeah. know, if you have if you have a phone, you probably have at least five apps that let you connect with other people besides yeah. just actually calling them, like uh, the freaking '90s or something. You actually make a phone yeah. call. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I think- and I've been telling people these days with coronavirus, make sure that you are also not just texting, but call and if you can zoom or skype you know so that people can or facetime so people can see you particularly i think a lot of the elderly are even much more isolated now my mom is in an assisted living place and they aren't allowed out of the building so she can't go out and they don't even want them out of the room Mm -hmm. 
she said, don't anybody tell on her, but she said she's walking the halls at night just to get exercise when nobody's around. Uh, so, um, you know, yeah, reach out and, but it, it is definitely a symptom of depression is isolating and it is not healthy. Yeah. Right. To, to just hunker down on the couch and make excuses to not do anything else or to yeah. say you got a lack of energy. You, it takes effort. Yeah. Even put in your own phone and just prompt yourself, call someone, zoom someone, connect with someone and even have it show up every 30 minutes. And until you finally, all right, I'm sick of me bugging myself and I'm going to take some action. <laughs> right. Uh, there's all sorts of techniques and tools, but, but yeah, I, I, texting is the worst means of communication that humans have. Um, yeah. The more senses you engage, that makes it more engaging. So yeah, don't it, it sender and receive it. This you can just read too much. Like your mood, I I speak for myself. My mood goes into a text, so I can read any message coming to me. I can read it as, oh, you hateful bat. You know, you're putting me down. <laughs> what's up? Oh, how dare you ask what's up? You know, you know, and and but so it's, it's horrible. Like yeah. our our mood will will interpret a text message so many different ways. But if I'm actually seeing you, we can look at each other's eyes and communicate. It, right. it it brings back the humanity yeah and, and we all we all have um mirror neurons where we're meant to see each other and feel each other and and be empathic and supportive and you know now more than ever everybody needs that if, yeah, if you're absolutely you know, if if your mental illness is being too blissfully happy all the time you know whatever it is right. like share that with somebody you know absolutely so you, you've got you've you've got a lot of accomplishments. You're doing a lot of, of good for yourself, for your family, for your community, for uh, your profession. What are you looking forward to? Is there a, a, a big vision for the depression files or for what Al is up to next or? Uh, you know, there's not really a vision. Uh, at times I wish uh, I could just do the mental health advocacy, the public speaking, the podcast, the blog, and focus all of my work on that. Um, so that may be a goal down the line, but I still enjoy working in the schools. I still love being around kids. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's tough too because I have a stable job with a decent salary and I get health care and wouldn't have that if I was off on my own. So I'm really enjoying how it is it, right now. It's a good mix. I get um, the work, the school, the kids get to utilize my brain a lot in that job and work with people. And I get to come home and, and work on the depression files and meet men and, you know, even editing the podcast and stuff. I feel like there's a lot of creativity that goes into it. So uh, I really, really enjoy where I'm at right now with kind of both those two pieces cool. and my family, of course. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, what's the best way that people can, can, can find you, get in touch with you, find the podcast? Yeah. Thanks for asking. The, uh, my website is thedepressionfiles.com, thedepressionfiles.com. And there you can find my story, you can find my blog, my podcast, uh, and then also you can find out how to reach out to me if anybody does want some coaching or public speaking. I'm looking forward to doing more of that as well. Um, but yeah, they're all on that website. Cool. And are you active? Are you especially active on any different social media platform than others? Or? Yes. Thank you again for asking. Uh, you know, one piece of advice I had early on was to really focus on one social media platform. Uh, so I'm really quite uh, big on Twitter. Twitter is definitely where I'm tweeting a lot. And so that is where you'll find me. I used to also have my tweets going to my Facebook account, but the Facebook doesn't allow that anymore or Twitter doesn't allow it. One of them don't yeah, allow so, it anymore. So, that, that, yeah, that broke somewhere along the line fairly recently. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I am on Facebook, but not nearly as much as Twitter. And on Twitter, I'm just at Al Levin 18. Al Levin 18. Cool. And uh, I love all the, the links and social media contacts for Al at uh, the show notes for this episode at realmenfield.org. So if you missed anything we talked about, uh, go there and you'll just be a click away to, uh, to track down Al and, and dig into the depression files further than this. Uh, Al, I want to I thank you, not for just being here, but for, for everything you're doing and being, well, first of all, for asking for help yeah, like, and you. receiving that and then sharing the fact that you got helped and that you're still here and you're helping other people stay here too. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. You uh, too, Andy, are doing incredible work. Yeah. Uh, 
unfortunately we're we're both needed yeah you know i i uh, a, a book I wrote it hit number one in the Amazon category for suicide, and I was like, "Yay, gross! I, why is this a category?" You know, so so I kind of right. wish we were. I I look forward to the day that we're obsolete in in, yeah. our, in the message that we need to share, but that's not today. So right, cool. So right. thanks again, Al. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, wherever you're discovering real men feel, please give a, a a like, a review, subscription, share it with someone else. And through this all, through whatever personal journey you're going through, through the global journey that we're all going through, support yourself, support your friends, support your family. You are not in this alone. And as always, be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel.